Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope de Gamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Episode 5A. This town is coming like a ghost town. The heart of the storyverse is the X-Train. And how often does that come? When it feels like it. Well, that's just perfect. It's no good. There's nowhere in the universe we can go. Nowhere in our universe. What are you talking about? What do you think happens if those things get us? Oh, wait. I've got it. We die. You see, there is somewhere to go. You can't move. Centralic. Oh, 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 no, Nazis. Singer, Zoroastrian. Uh, what's happening now? Zodiac killer, zesty, separatism. practice of hiring your youngest sibling for some, but not all, of your oh, projects. And what guys, do you care? Guys. This isn't Scrabble. Guys. This is the most ridiculous Guys! In case you haven't noticed, we're now floating in space, and I'd very much like to know why. Why? I'll tell you why. This deranged half-wit was just sent us into the afterlife. <laughs> I guess the bloom's off that, Rose. Wait, so what are you telling me? We're dead? No, no. We're just where all the dead people go and can never escape. But it's all right. We brought our bodies with us. So we can leave. I mean, I haven't exactly worked that part out yet. Oh, you come here! Hey, Whoa. hey, hey, physics, James, physics. Whoa. No traction, no motion. That's how space works. Oh, now we're going hard, SF? Sure, why not? Oh, would you look at that? What? It's a story. Sustenance by Bradley Robert Parks. Story for 
from the afterlife? Touchy subject for you, I imagine. Ooh, never mind that. It looks... tasty. Sustenance by Bradley Robert Parks Originally published in BuzzyMag.com 2014 I knock on the door and hand the woman who answers a card by way of introduction. This one says, Harlan Powers, Supernatural Investigations. Holly, I ask, and she nods, blinking at me, at the card, at me again. You answered my ad on Craigslist, I say. We're both embarrassed for our shared plight. She for calling a supernatural investigator, me for being one. Her bloodshot eyes, ringed with dark smudges, testify to sleepless nights. She's haunted. I'm hungry. The universe provides. She doesn't move. I chalk it up to lack of sleep. Or my appearance. I look like someone who doesn't see much daylight. Or food. When I'm this hungry, the effect is a little corpsey. So I won't touch her. In my current state, that would not end well. Instead, I say, May I? Oh, she steps aside for me. I'm sorry. Come in. Cozy place you've got here. I'm pouring on the small schlock to diffuse the weirdness. She looks around and nods, hugging a chunky, patterned cardigan closer around her. I look particularly gaunt. Her gaze stays glued to the parquet. Like I said, I'm hungry, and physical food only gets me so far. Don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of food. I'm sort of like a panda bear. They weren't made to survive on bamboo, but it's what they've got. They've adapted to it. So they eat and eat to stay alive. It's like that for me. Holly murmurs something in response to my observation. She's ragged, flustered, probably not thinking very clearly. I get down to business. Where do the disturbances occur? She blinks some more before the question registers, then leads me back through the apartment. It's a railroad affair, long and narrow. From the living room at the front, she leads me down a hallway to a kitchen, sink piled high with dishes, past a dark bathroom and into the bedroom. My stomach rumbles. When Holly had given me her address, I did my research. Long before the building was apartments, it had sat abandoned for a while. And before that, bingo. I knew I had scored the mother load. It had a sweatshop filled with sewing machines where immigrant women and children, mostly Russian, some Irish, had tailored their days away. Until the fire. Reading that had set my mouth to watering. For every obvious moaning and chain-rattling spirit, several quiet ones wait. Living in wall sockets or door jams. Awareness so slow they never see me coming. Not terribly satisfying, but certainly the escargot to my main course. Information helps with the hunt. 
knowing who they may have been in life, suggested what patterns they might be replaying in the not-quite-hereafter. I am walking around the room, hands hovering over the bookcase, the nightstand, the bed. It's partly for show, to give her a reason to ask what she's going to ask next. Harlan? Mr. Powers? Oh yeah, that's me. I haven't used this name in a while. For a weird moment, I can't remember my name. My real name. And it's like vertigo. What What do you need me to do? I snap back to myself and tell Holly she can go. Maybe see a movie or get something to eat. I watch her wrestle with the idea of leaving a stranger in her apartment. She loses. She's desperate and vulnerable. Good thing I don't want anything she has. Anything she values, anyway. As soon as the front door closes, I turn to testing my theories about the apartment. I am so right. All I have to do is lean against the bedroom door jamb. Spirits prickle under my fingertips, their tinny little long-ago screams muffled by the painted wood and sheetrock that separate me from the original brick. I slide my messenger bag around until I can get to the outer pocket, already unzipped. A cramp kicks me in the side, too long since I've eaten. My fingers find the long, thin hardness of my needles, and I draw out the velvet bag they come in. Once free, they make their way into the crooks of my fingers as if on their own, chopstick style, already whispering to me. I begin prodding and pinching at the air around the door. The needles prickle too. Come on, I whisper, and start humming. Down by the old mill stream. I guess it's right around the time of the fire. Maybe they don't know the song. Maybe they never listened to the music of their adopted country. I'd soon find out. The first wisp to reach out for the needles finds itself pinched between them. I taste its surprise and shock as I draw it to my mouth and suck, like a tourist slurping ramen in a Chinatown cafe, which is pretty much why I don't want anyone around when I feed. Sloppy and silly, if you can't see the insubstantial form that slides like smoke through a crack in the wood. Hmm. Russian, I think by the earthy, acrid tang, like like mushrooms and gunpowder. Mm, woman, young, frightened. Mm, her last memory was frantic, smoke and fire and panic. I've become accustomed to the flavor of fear, enough to enjoy a little, like cilantro. Yet the true pleasure is found deeper in the culture she brought from her homeland, the love she carried for her family. I savor the remnants of her, the dreamy half-life of relived moments that slumbered with her all these years, tasting the essentials that remain, painted like a minimalist character sketch across my palate. A passionate soul, this one, with... Mm, subtle undertones of music. She played. Or listened. 
and she had, yes, a little girl, the next to come to my needles. Mm, young, not much for my appetite, but very, very sweet. Perhaps she was asleep when the fire took her, because there is almost no fear at all. Huh, an unexpected treat. But even as the sweetness lingers, like the enticing hint of perfume left behind on the air, the room grows cold behind me. This is why I am here. Not these frightened, sleeping slips of residue. I turn. The moaners, the chain rattlers, the furniture shakers, and the window foggers. These are what I hunger for, the sustenance I need. Something forms in the air, and I get a hint of not-quite-rightness. I can already feel a strange, um, a strange substantialness. Not quite like the living, the ones I try not to touch, but the closest thing to alive I've ever felt from the dead. My hunger surges, almost a, a live thing, urging me to lunge at this new spirit thing, even though I have just fed. What foul thing is this? Before it even has a face, it's talking. Shit, it's a talker. And the accent, like, like something from a BBC melodrama. The face forms as it speaks. Big mudden chops, strong mouth, fierce eyes, smiling lips, the blue color of death. Normally, I'm kind of, okay, almost totally colorblind. Yeah, I know, like, I don't have enough to deal with, poor me. But spirits come to me in glorious technicolor. And from the look of this guy's costume, he probably predates movies by a few hundred years. Oh, but what joy. If he's a movie, he's a talkie. They're like Death's DVR, playing scenes from the show they lived. But those words, they stop me. Soul eater, he intones. When I yet lived, I hunted your kind. Somehow your progency escaped me. I shiver. This creature is different. He doesn't just see me. He knows who I am or rather what I am, and he's got one up on me. I don't know what I am. Moreover, this one is talking to me. This development is all kinds of spooky, and that's something to someone who eats spirits. Who are you? I almost choke on the words, but I have to say something. I do not generally like to chat with my dinner. It's creepy and repugnant. Eating the talking is just one step from eating the living. But what can I do? I'm no exorcist. I tried that once, and it did not go well. Maybe I can just put him out, like a mouse in one of those no-kill traps. It's laughable, but the alternative is more than I can stomach. I'm torn. I've got a job to do, but this floating gas bag has information. He puffs out his chest and crosses his arms. Oh boy, here it comes. I am an instrument of holy terror, a warrior of the soul, a paragon of purity. Are you finished? 
I also cross my arms and glare, pins tucked in the crook of my elbow. He laughs, floating backward as though blown back on the gales of his mirth. The joker, the the braggart, mm, the politician. Uh, I'm flipping through mental index cards, trying to classify him, trying to find an in. There's an in for every type. And he's got something on me, something I want desperately to know. But I can't let him know I'm desperate, or it's all over. Does this paragon of purity have a name? In life, I was Granville Julius Sutton Third. I suppose you are here to dispatch me. He sighs, long and gusty, and drifts a bit further away. Such irony to find myself in this unfortunate situation. Then again, I fully expected to die at the hands of one of you. And that was not the way I met my end. Fate is truly a peculiar thing. Mmm, indeed. I feign boredom as I slide closer. But you're bothering the nice lady who lives here. Time to go. I raise my needles. Yeah! The spirit darts back, hovering over a writing desk, some old roll top, afraid against the wall. This, I presume, is its home. It's not native. The infernal pins! What? These? I wave them at him, and his form ripples as he's pulled sort of the way I was pulled when I first wandered into a second-hand shop where these had been hiding in a basket of knitting needles. From all the pretty, shiny, and I presume colorful needles, I had pulled these. For me, they gleamed a red-hot orange from the look on the clerk's face when I paid 99 cents for them, plus tax. They must look like they've been dipped in shit." A snap of the arm and a click, and I've caught him by the tail of his waistcoat. Gah! No! I shall not end like this. He pulls back, but I have him now, like a kite. How could I have failed so thoroughly at my life's work that one of your kind could be reunited with your weapon? Would that I had my sword... What do you know about these? I gesture with the needles, and the misty body flits where I point. But he is laughing too hard to answer me. It's a dry, wheezing sound. Oh, hell no. I lunge, and the needles are in him. The laugh turns to a bellow of rage. I jerk back. <laughs> this is rich. You have the pins, but know not how to use them. You truly do not know what you are. Oh, come on. I stab forward with the needles like I'm fishing for the last cashew in my cashew chicken. The ghost grimaces. You cannot hurt me, little soul devourer. You can only destroy me. The only one who knows what you are. Are you... You get CNN on the desk, do you? You up on the news? He just looks at me, all baffled, bemusement. 
How do I know you're the library of Alexandria of soul devourers? Why shouldn't I just burn you down? You lack the knowledge to wield the infernal pins for their true intention. And he drifts a lazy circle like he is pacing the floor of his study. I am still here. The bastard is enjoying this. He probably hasn't had a conversation in a hundred years. All right, then. Keep him talking. Throw a few banana peels and hope he slips. So, I gesture at the desk. What happened to the rest of the furniture? I kick at the cheap rolling desk chair and the plastic rattles. You've come a long way, baby. My estate would shame the hovel you must inhabit, judging by your rags. His hand run down the ruffles on his shirt front. Your kind were always easy to find, gypsies and slum dwellers. Hey, this is vintage, and my hovel is rent-controlled. Where were you slumming when you were hunting? He ignores me, his voice going all wistful. I recall those warrens chasing my prey down fetid hallways as they scurried before me. Others feared your kind enough to hunt from a distance with arrows. He spits, or at least goes through the motions. Echo spit. I've heard enough, but he's hardly finished. With the sword, you could see the trapdoor to hell open behind their eyes. That's a new one. I grit my teeth to keep from screaming at him. He does not get to know his words are anything to me but echoes in dead air. Must suck to know you failed. I fell twenty and seven of your creatures in my truncated experience. Hardly a failure. He puffs up, proud of his little track record of murder. First, my blood boils in my ears. At last, that's what it feels like. I can't hear for the rushing sound, like listening to the sea in a shell. Just when I think my head's gonna pop, I remember to breathe. My mother's voice comes to me, the way she tried to comfort the son she didn't understand. He's just another bully. He's just another bully with a sword. He's just another dead bully. He's just... I take a deep breath and respond. And you're worried about me, a guy with some rusty knitting needles. Sometimes this ploy works. Don't laugh, really. It does. You got a tough client, say... They called you, but they don't believe you can do anything. So you turn it around, convince them you're a fraud. In a blink, they're arguing for you. (laughs) Works almost every time. He crosses his arm and looks at me like, let's be honest with one another. What is the last thing you remember before you died? This is the question he didn't expect. His face pinches up. I know this look. I get it a lot, usually when I'm giving my pitch. It takes more than that to deter me, but I also know when I have an opening. This look is not just closed. 
It's bricked up and sealed with cement. Double dog damn. He has me between a rock and my reputation. Okay, my world may have me weird, but still, people like Holly get frightened into believing. They call me. I get rid of their cold spots, their dishes that move by themselves, their talking toasters, whatever. They don't know how it happens. Most of the time, they don't care. And I get paid. Like I said, reputation. It's not much, but it's my little empire. Maybe I do have something. I've never tried this, so here goes. I've already got him in the needles. I yank, not toward my mouth, but toward the bedroom door. What? I say through clenched teeth. I yank again. Arr! I walk slowly backward until I feel a stretch, like a rubber band starting to resist. These! Now he screams, and the see-through body begins to splotch with irregular patches that are more translucent than the rest. It looks like it hurts. Good. Then he starts to mutter something between clenched, transparent teeth, and the room gets really cold. Like, see your breath cold. Except I can't breathe, because the air is swirling with spirits, pouring from electrical outlets and door jams and cracks in the plaster. The spirits are pissed, jabbing at me with freezing fingers. I'm so caught off guard, I can't think. I snap out with my needles, but I'm snapping behind. My eyes fill with white fog. Too many of them can't suck in, can't breathe. Then they're gone. I'm on my ass on the floor, and he's laughing down at me, free from the needles and being a total asshole about it. Could he have killed me? I almost can't think. The idea is like Teflon-coated snot, so horrifying I can't grasp it. I mean, I imagine sitting down to a nice plate of spaghetti without knowing whether you or the pasta is going to survive. I can't have my dinner trying to kill me any more than I can stomach the idea of eating anything that can carry on a conversation. Was this what my freaky forebears went through? Did they, too, feel like starving vegans at a churrascaria? Meat, meat everywhere, and not a thing to eat. Or did they eat the living? And that's what powdered-up wig heads like Granville here couldn't tolerate. He thinks he's so clever. He thinks he's got me by the brains. Like I'm so hot to know what he knows that I'll gravel just because he's some big shot from the beyond. I drag myself to my feet, getting my breath back. I walk right up to him, face to floating face, and I'll give him props. He doesn't even flinch. I'm not a creature. Did you ever get to know any of these people you dispatched? Did you? Why should I brandy about with creatures such as yourself, spawn of the night, who devour their own families to live? An image of my mother slams into the back of my eyeballs. So frail and weak, she wasted away, but she just kept on. She never understood. 
She was always so sick. She got sick and she died. End of story. I did not eat my mother. I did not. My arm snaps out, and before Granville can blink, I've caught him by the mutton chop. He's given me no choice. A jerk of the arm, a lurch of the stomach, and a quick intake of breath through pursed lips. The feeling of power is insane, burning down my gullet and spreading through me like an energy drink of the gods, a feast like a month of thanksgivings, but without the urge to sleep in the front of a football game until New Year's. But it doesn't last long. This is where it gets bad. I don't get food poisoning, but I've had people tell me about it, because I'm sick that way. I want to know if it feels anything like this cramps, but from the inside, like my spine and my brain are having a fight. I hear my knees hit the floor. I don't feel it. The room spins, so I close my eyes. The only icing on all of this, he's aware of everything that's happening to him, even as everything that was him gets swallowed into me. I feel the flame of his outrage, like vomit at the back of my throat, and I'm talking, but I have no idea what I'm saying. It's like my brain won't register language. A sharp pain in my forehead tells me I'm on the floor, thrashing around, and I've hit something. Opening my eyes is a mistake. The spinning of the room twists my guts. The room is hot. I'm so warm. I'm never warm. Why am I so warm? Mr. Powers! Mr. Powers! A woman's voice, insistent, scared, and shaking my shoulder. Ow! I groan. She squeaks. Oh, God! Mr. Powers, are you okay? Who is this Mr. Powers? Oh, yeah, that would be me. I open my eyes. Holly is crouched beside me, wide eyes making her look animated. She'd be great at cosplay. I giggle or choke, and her eyes get even bigger. I giggle or choke, and her eyes get even bigger. This house, I croak and try again. This house is clean. That starts the giggling again. All my muscles are sore, like I've been stretched on the rack, but I feel really good. Oh, 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 I I should call. She reaches toward the nightstand. I resist the urge to grab her wrist. No, no calling. I push myself up. I'm, I'm fine, see? She nods, not quite believing. As I sit up, squinting into the light from the hall, she gasps. Mr. Powers, you look so different from when you got here. What happened to your forehead? I push past her into the tiny bathroom in the hall and look into the mirror. An angry red mark, about an inch long and narrow, runs down one side of my forehead. But other than that, I look... I look human. By which I mean healthy, flesh-colored... Less like these creepy twins from The Matrix, and more like Keanu Reeves. I never claimed to be all that good-looking. I close my eyes. 
like an unwanted house guest, I've got Granville Julius Sudden Third and all his shit taking up residence in the back of my head. I see a house somewhere, a great big freaking estate. I see me stopping his wife, his servant girls, and a barmaid, and a prostitute or two. I see arrogant, entitled children always wanting to borrow the keys to the carriage or get another pony or whatnot, ungrateful brats. I see him playing the mogul on his father's money, making a fortune while his parents rot in some hellacious institution, and I don't care. I mean, Granville doesn't care. It's bits and pieces. The one I could digest from the rancid stew that was Granville. My constitution can't handle all the complexities of the living under the best of circumstances, but this guy went down like a month-old milk, left out on the counter for about a week. But sifting through the unsavories, I find some of what I was after. I see secret meetings where he and his bigwig buddies scheme and wheel and deal and plot and hunt. Only they're hunting people, people like me, and not just people like me, the full spectrum of unnaturals who pretty much make up the whole of my circle of friends. What a prick. Holly is hovering outside the bathroom door, those owl eyes quivering with concern. That desk, I say, and she cocks her head a little, confused. Where did you get it? What? Oh, the desk, in my room. Is that where it, where he was? But he's gone now. I give you my personal guarantee you won't be bothered again. But the desk. An estate sale on Craigslist, a place on the Upper East Side. They moved away a month ago. I don't remember who they were. Why? Call it professional curiosity. I placate as I curse. Shit. Up a dry creek without a paddle. Some day it would be nice to track down another me out there. I hang around, only long enough for her to transfer my fee into my PayPal. The satisfying ping as the notification comes through my phone. As I leave, I give my usual spiel about, if you have any friends that need a supernatural house cleaning, give them my name. I know it's unlikely. Soon, I'll be back to the hospital or the graveyard or the mall. You'd be surprised what you can find among the aisles of the J.C. Pennies. Plus, you never know where the next job will come from. I live pretty cheap. I can keep going on this little stipend for a few weeks. But this time, the money is hardly the reward. I'm about goddamn breathless with the implications of what I've learned. The reward for convulsing around in the dunking booth of Granville's life I've been plunged into, all his nasty, hateful, holier-than-thou ideas and ideals, is this. I know more about me than I've ever known before. And for a change, I'm not even remotely hungry. Bradley Levine is a New York City-based actor, creator, and producer. 
recent stage credits, James and the Giant Peach, James, the Argyle Theatre, Cassie Noisette, World Premiere Bridge Street Theatre, Camp Rolling Hills, and YMF. Original devised pieces include Gathering Sparks, Bangkok Explorament Festival, Theatre Row, Down the Urinal Hole, and Around the Corner, Fixin Place, KC Fringe. You can find him on IG at Bradley underscore Levine and at www.bradleylevine.com. Bradley Robert Parks is a writer and sometimes singer and founded the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers in 2010. His publication credits can be found on his website, bradleyrobertparks.com. He lives in Brooklyn with his husband and one perfect cat. Miss Magoo. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. A special thank you to Mary Rogers. We hope you enjoy listening to the Kaleidocast as much as we enjoy making it for you. If you are, will you consider joining our Patreon? It's a way for you to financially support this podcast with whatever you feel comfortable giving. Right now, the Kaleidocast pays semi-pro rates for original fiction, but we have big dreams. We want to pay more for the authors, narrators, engineers, and artists who make this podcast possible. Won't you join us? Visit patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash k-a-l-e-i-d-o-c-a-s-t-n-y-c. From all your producers, Bradley, Cam, S-O-A, Joe, Marcus, Marcy, Sam, and Sandra, thank you for supporting the Kaleidocast. I'm, uh, I'm not hungry anymore. In space, no one can hear your stomach growl. It's more ghost space than space space. Tomato, tomato. All we need to do is lean into the connection between our world and the world of the living. It's a reverse seance. What? That's, that's not a thing. It's not a thing. That sounds like reverse racism. A seance is a call for attention from the afterlife. We call for attention from the pre-afterlife. Well, we have nothing better to do. Let's get to work. Reverse seance prep montage theme, go! Hands for millions. Start a five. Bright cotillion. Ravens die. Nightshades promise, spirits strive, to the not-quite-dead, let the living die.
worked! It worked! This was a terrible idea! It was a genius idea! Forgetting to pick a destination was the terrible idea. Our seance is broadcasting out to random points across time and space. What? Ooh. I'm making a phone call. We could end up anywhere. Hello? Hello? Yes! Yes! Thank you! Table for three! Ghost Champagne by Charlie Jane Anders 1. Comedy You know what I wish? I wish I could just reach into someone's chest and pull out their beating heart and show it to them. Like a movie villain. And then I would put it back and their chest would seal up and they would be fine. I'm not a monster. But imagine how great that would be. Whenever the endless string of entitled ass clowns start screwing with you. Just reach in and zoop. Oh, what's this? It's your heart. In my hand. You want to say something now, huh? I didn't think so. I mean... I would only use this power in extreme circumstances, like when one of the developers in my day job starts mansplaining to me, or when I'm super bored in a meeting. Speaking of which, why is it okay to text in a meeting, but not to play Candy Crush? That's discrimination. My comedy set is off to a pretty good start, and then I notice my ghost at a third row table, right between the canoodling pierced tipsters and the drunken yuppies. Some days I hardly notice my ghost, but lately she's in my face a whole lot more. Today she's wearing a lacy lollygoth dress that I wish I owned in real life. And a little hat over her wavy dark hair, which is a little shorter than mine. She's drinking a sidecar or an old-fashioned because, yeah, even ghosts must obey the two-drink minimum rule at Sal's Comedy Cellar. And she watches me go through my set with the usual disaffected look on her face, like, been there, done that, and died. I do what I always do. Ignore her. Even when she knocks the candle off her table and turns the floor into a minefield of broken glass and hot wax. Fuck her. Remember the toolkit. Keep going. Look past her. I try to gaze instead at my boyfriend, Raj, sitting on a stool in the back. The ghost doesn't matter. She had her chance to be alive. She obviously blew it. We've reached the butt jokes section of my set. Dick jokes are for lesser intellects, but butt jokes are sophisticated and brilliant. And then Raj gets up and walks upstairs with the rest of the comics, right when I'm getting to the part about how my man has a big butt, and why is there no female equivalent of an ass man? Nobody ever says ass woman, which just sounds like the worst superheroine ever. Raj just up and walks out on me. I see my ghost out of the corner of my eye giving me a look like, what can you do? I stumbled through my set, but the energy is all gone, 
And I don't even get any love for my spiel about how Japanese toilets are so great. With the heated seats and the jets of warm water, it's like being rimmed by pixies. I sat on one and my butt finally forgave me for the horseback riding lessons I took when I was twelve. My ghost gets so bored, she knocks over someone's beer glass with the back of her hand. Crash! The crowd is a goddamn humor sponge. Fuck all these stupid people. Why do they pay $15 just to zonk out in public when they could stay home and watch the Homophobia channel for free? When I get upstairs to the sidewalk after my set, Raj and the other comedians, mostly dudes, are standing out front smoking, even though Raj doesn't smoke. It's a cool, dry night. They nod at me, and then they start talking about how Raj and I should have kids. You should have kids so you can enter the America's Funniest Mom competition. You would crush that, says Roddy, who's basically just a pair of sideburns in search of a face. You should have kids so you can get some fashion cred, because, you know, kids are the perfect accessories, says the bleach-blonde sunburnt Campbell. We should have kids so I can be a stay-at-home dad instead of just unemployable, says Raj, choking a little on his cig. If you had kids, you could get a sick reality TV show on public access cable with your crazy family and shit, Roddy says. I realize that Raj put them up to this. He asked them to broach the idea of having kids, and this is the way they've chosen to go about it. I just roll my eyes and walk away, heading down bleaker towards the F. I'm not going to sit through the rest of the night waiting for Raj's set after this shit show. My ghost slouches on the other side of the street, loitering outside the CVS and the fetish boutique. She gives me a friendly wave, and I ignore her. She didn't laugh once during my comedy set, but now my ghost looks at me, sees my angry tears, and laughs. Ruefully, which goes with the territory, I guess. I forget the toolkit for once and just stare at her, as if this time there might be some clue. Just like always, my ghost looks exactly like me, except older and dead. She has the tilde-shaped scar on her chin that I got rock climbing when I was 19, and she had it before I did. She's gazing into the fetish shop through the aluminum shutters. 2. Authority Why is my own ghost haunting me anyway? Do I die in the future and decide that instead of going to whatever afterlife a shitty comedian, lapsed evangelical, and unfulfilled techie goes to, I'd rather go back in time and haunt my own living self? Is this a curse? A punishment for some mistake I didn't know I've made or maybe will make? Most of all, why is my ghost such a bitch? I went to every stupid medium and spiritualist and got a big goose egg. I went into therapy, and my therapist just wanted to give me pills to make me stop seeing the ghost. But as soon as Dr. Jane reached for her prescription pad, my ghost went full poltergeist. She started in with the diplomas on the wall and then got into the dolls and the office computer. And finally, the antique furniture. Dr. Jane's classy office turned into a tweaker's love nest. Dr. Jane couldn't stop hyperventilating until I held her like a colicky baby for, like, ten minutes. Whatever. 
I stopped worrying about the ghost since she mostly minds her own business and I've got a life to live. Trust the toolkit. Trust the toolkit. Raj grovels for three days and I finally sort of forgive his ass. He's the sweetest guy when we're not around other comedians, which we're both trying to break into comedy, so... I get mad all over again when Raj gets invited to be in a fancy comedy showcase the following week, and I'm somehow skipped over. But Raj gives me a dozen foot rubs and cleans the bathroom and offers to help me shop for a wedding present for my mom. What do you get your mom when she's marrying a woman the exact same age as you? Seriously. What? But I notice that when I find out about being left out of the big comedy show, which is headlined by a B-list comedian whose set is basically listing Star Wars toys he used to own, my ghost seems to get a little less transparent. I can make out the tiny lines on her, my face, more clearly. She's perched on the wooden stool by the kitchen counter of the teeny one-bedroom that Raj and I share in Greenpoint and she's holding a mug of chai that smells of cinnamon and seaweed. I notice she's got her ears double-pierced, whereas mine are just single-pierced. Raj notices I'm staring into space and asks what's up. He's got big friendly eyes and a wide pouty mouth, and hair like a single blue flame. He touches my left palm with his right index finger, and I kind of melt. I tell him nothing's up. I'm just thinking about the big presentation at work, which, since we're both living off my income, is kind of a thing. He kisses me. Hot butterflies. And he tells me to knock him dead. My ghost has a seat in the back of the conference room for my presentation, where I yak about some of the challenges in our next code push. I mostly love being a project manager, except my company keeps changing its business model. This month... We're making an app to help people use their Spotify playlist to get laid. I'm not even kidding. It's called Remixer. I'm doing a pretty solid job of talking through the workflow issues we've been having, except one of the coders named Mickey keeps engaging in microaggressions, spreading his legs real wide in his chair, throwing paper balls at the trash right next to where I'm standing. His aim sucks and yawn laughing while I'm talking. Everyone else is just bored, probably playing Candy Crush under the chrome table. Over by the window, my ghost is staring out at the Shake Shack across the street, as if she could really go for an extra-large chocolate shake and fries right now. She's wearing sweatpants in a professional office setting. Her expression plainly says that being a ghost has certain perks, and giving zero fucks about stupid product meetings is one of them. I breathe and look away from the ghost, but I keep snagging her in my peripheral vision. The thought that's always in the back of my mind surges forward. You're going to lose your mind. It's in the cards. The corner of my eye has become my whole field of vision putting my ghost front and center. I start mumbling and repeating myself until the bun-haired VP of product, Marsha, thanks me for my efforts and says we should move on. In my dreams, I'm a semi-famous turbo geek who rocks the comedy scene every night. 
I have this fantasy of going to some city to give a TEDx talk where I somehow make everybody laugh and rethink their whole way of looking at everything. And then since I'm already in town, I might as well just go perform at the local comedy spot that's been begging me to show up. I actually enjoy the whole process of making things happen, helping code come together and putting out products that enrich people's lives, even when it's something like Remixer. I like the problem solving, and I feel like I'm good at making smart people pull their heads out of their butts. Usually. A few hours after the big presentation, I stumble into one of the hundred company chat rooms and notice a couple of the C-level execs talking about the upcoming workforce reduction. And then they notice I'm lurking, and immediately bail and delete their own conversation. I look up from the screen, where the words possible strategic layoffs are fading to white, and see my ghost. She's closer to me than ever, just peering over my cubicle wall. And I can hardly see through her at all. 3. Family My mom and her new bride take me to brunch at a Moroccan diner, and I'm scared mom is going to ask me to give her away. Cassie, my soon-to-be stepmom, is pale and skinny, with random tufts of platinum hair coming out of her shaved head. Glam tank girl. Her skin is amazing, like she must just have microdermabrasion all over her entire body once a day or something. My ghost is sitting at the next table in a sundress drinking a mimosa. My mom is telling me how she and Cassie are going to get married by a gay Buddhist who turns your sexual guilt into a stuffed animal as a part of the ceremony. I grew up in a really strict religious household, in a plantation house whose dark wood foundations were being slowly devoured by termites. My mom was raised Presbyterian in Mexico City, and she married this waspy, charismatic preacher who was just a grabby pair of calloused hands and a red face in my memories. Before he met my mom, I heard my dad might have done snake handling, which I wish I had gotten to see because, fuck yeah, snakes. The one time I made the mistake of telling my dad I thought I saw a ghost, he and a few of his deacons prayed over me for a full twelve hours, not letting me sleep. One of the deacons had breath that smelled like sour milk, and I started to lose my mind. My mom's family might have at least accepted a ghost as normal, and just told me to visit some graveyards, pay some respect. My parents were neo-Calvinists, which means they believed in predestination, kinda sorta, and the idea that your fate after death is sealed while you're still alive. My mother used to tuck me in every night and tell me that she was afraid my soul was already damned. Now, Mom's telling me that she and Cassie have written their own vows, and there's a lot of stuff about giving yourself permission to love without expectations. My mom's family is not coming to the wedding, except for crazy Aunt Letitia, who was cut off before I was even born. My mom has kind of a butch haircut that makes her face look a lot squarer, and she's wearing suspenders over a t-shirt. She looks really good. She looks younger than I feel. She keeps laughing, which is a sound I never heard until a few years ago. Gloria, she tells me, I really want this day to be special for you as well as us. I want you to feel free. 
When I was a teenager, sneaking out after curfew, going to smoke in the woods with the other dead-end kids, my ghost egged me on. My parents locked me in. My ghost let me out. My parents yelled at me. My ghost stood in the corner, arms folded, and glared at them. Jesus has a plan for you. You need to surrender, my mother pleaded, while the ghost studied her hands. Back then, I didn't even recognize myself in her. I just thought she was some random ghost, haunting this old South Carolina house. That place was a natural ghost habitat, with so many gloomy corners and moldy back rooms full of barbed rust. Cassie is saying she wants us to be friends. Something she said before— and holding my mother's hand across the table in front of me. She's got movie star blue eyes, and she really seems to be crazy about Mom. They are waiting for me to say something. Something like, I feel super lucky that we have this second chance as a family. Something like, I'm so happy for the two of you. Those are things I absolutely do feel, though I can tell without looking that my ghost is annoyed by all this hippy-dippy nonsense. My ghost is not okay with this midlife reinvention on the part of the woman who spent so many years telling me I had no choices. I look at the fried eggs and hummus on my plate, breathe and say the best thing I can think of. I'm glad you finally figured out your deal. Wish you could have found yourself sooner, but maybe you guys can have a new baby with a turkey baster and give it the perfect childhood with Montessori and organic candy and no judgment. It's never too late, am I right? When I look up, I see that my comments didn't land the way I had hoped. My mom looks crushed, actually weeping for fuck's sake, and Cassie is comforting her. My ghost, though, has scooted her chair closer and is practically part of our party. 4. Therapy Dr. Jane can kind of tell from my gaze that my ghost is standing right behind her chair. She keeps twitching, as if her office furnishings will fly through the air any minute. She's a frumpy 50-something lady in a giant cat sweater, and I think I respond to her partly because she's so unlike my mother. She smiles in a distant but nurturing way and asks me what the week brought me, like the week is a hunting dog that drops rabbits at my feet or something. I'm freaking out, I say. The toolkit broke. What broke the toolkit, she asks. Everything. Everything broke the toolkit. My ghost is 100% not ignorable any longer. My ghost is right up in my business. All of the coping mechanisms are kaput because the ghost jams them up. All that stuff about connecting with Dia de los Muertos and remembering that the dead are part of life, it didn't work. You try telling jokes when your own ghost is sitting right there with a dead grimace on her face. You try leading a meeting. You try having an honest-to-God processing conversation with your adorable boyfriend who keeps trying to claim he's a feminist because he's letting you support him financially. Just try it. Your ghost only has the power you give it, says Dr. Jane. She doesn't believe that any more than I do. She's the one who had to invest in all new office furniture. But she probably thinks that's a good therapisty thing to say.
goddamn positive thinking. She's the only one but me who's ever seen my ghost in action, and the only one I've told since I was a kid. You're doing so well, Dr. Jane says. You've gotten a promotion at work. You're in a position of authority over people. You're getting better comedy bookings at bigger venues. You've got a boyfriend whom you adore. You've been rebuilding your relationship with your mother. Just think how much better your life is than when you were first coming to see me. I don't know, I say. I don't know if any of that is true. That's how it sounds to me, from the outside looking in. It sounds like you're a successful grown-up, which is pretty much never fun for anybody, says Dr. Jane. And your ghost? Your ghost was really useful when you were a teenager, trying to break out of a bad situation. But now she's just in your way. I glance up at my ghost, who is looking at my therapist hand puppets on the shelf, apparently not listening to any of this. I can never tell how much language she understands, like, does everything sound garbled and weird to her? I've asked her yes or no questions, point blank, and she never nodded or shook her head or anything. I don't feel like my ghost is helpful or unhelpful, I say. I feel like she's waiting. I feel like every time I fail at something, she gets stronger. Every setback, I see her more clearly. Like she's getting power from my screw-ups. Or like I'm getting closer to turning into her. Maybe. And here. Dr. Jane looks nervous because she's afraid the ghost will start trashing her office again. Maybe it's partly just in your mind. Maybe you just think the ghost is getting closer and more solid. I can't see what you see, so I can't tell for myself. I don't know. I have a strong sense that my ghost is feeding off my self-destruction. I need a new toolkit. There's no new toolkit. Dr. Jane scrunches her big brow. There's just the coping mechanisms I already taught you. Don't try to figure out what your ghost's agenda is or what your ghost wants. Try to figure out what you really want. What do you actually care about? <laughs> As if I could possibly know that. Five. Arrowheads. At the karaoke bar, I foolishly put myself down for a Shakira song. Some people say I look like Shakira, but nobody ever says I sound like her. And my ghost is at one of the spit-catching tables up front nursing a margarita, wearing a dress with a million ruffles. The screen with the lyrics might as well be Swahili writing, beamed into the void. Raj is up front dancing, cheering me on and clapping, but all I can see is the ghost's face, which isn't even looking at me at all. She's never looking at me whenever I look right at her, I realize for the first time. She stares at Raj like she remembers loving him way back when. Sadness, resignation on her face. Like she remembers this time when her life was almost good. I topple forward off the stage and fall on my knees on the grungy floor at my ghost's feet. I can't breathe, much less sing. The crowd is still not sure if I'm doing a dramatic dance move or having a medical situation. I can't even hear the music with my ears pounding. Raj comes to me and asks if I'm okay. 
and I say, like you care, the song is over. I go home. My ghost stands between me and the whiteboard in a meeting at work. I'm sitting and watching Marcia talk about the drop-dead deadline for the remixer launch, but I can't even read the words she's pointing to. My ghost keeps shaking her head in syncopation with Marcia's droning. Today, my ghost is wearing a bikini, revealing a tattoo on her stomach that I cannot read at any cost to my eyesight. I hate her so much. She's going to fuck up everything for me one way or the other. She's fucking smug is what she is. She's already lived all this shit and she's over it, and she won't let me just live it for myself. Marcia is asking me a question. I stare past my ghost and say something about security audits, which I think is probably relevant to what she was talking about the last time I paid attention. Security is for version 2.0, Marcia says. We need to launch this thing. Raj and I are at the mall, shopping for a wedding present for Mom, and we're on the escalator behind three kids who are reading an internet tutorial on how to shoplift. Raj is excited. This mall has three different shops just for socks. Socks are the best. Did you know that in the 1970s, nobody wore socks? It caused this thing called stagflation. What would happen if you actually blew up a stag party? Raj runs off the escalator and nearly gets away from me. My ghost is right there at my elbow, though. My ghost sits near my bed at night, watching Raj sleep. My ghost watches Raj perform at the comedy showcase, his big break, and laughs without making a sound. When I sit in the toilet stall, eavesdropping, as Marcia and Sandra from accounting wash their hands and whisper about the upcoming rationalization, my ghost is out there next to them, also washing her hands in ghost water. It's like arrowheads are embedded in my back, on either side of my neck so that even raising my head or lifting my arms causes excruciating pain. I feel like a bomb that's lost its detonator, like I will just go critical forever without ever getting to explode. At dinner, my ghost sits in Raj's lap as he tries to talk to me about our relationship. 6. Wedding Hey, Raj says, I know this is a weird thing for you, your mom turning into a lesbian cougar. I want to tell you that I'm here, and I get it, and I'm on your team. Raj is touching my hand, leaning over, talking in my ear. We're right up front at the wedding, surrounded by young queer people in incredible fashions. I always thought a tux was a tux, but it turns out that tuxedos have personalities. The sound of Raj's voice is making me feel grounded, like I have a core after all. And what he's saying makes a certain amount of sense. This is a weird thing for me, after so many years of defining myself in opposition to my parents. It's like I don't know who I am. I don't even see my ghost anywhere. I don't, like, scan the entire room looking for her. I just take the win. Maybe she's hanging back and letting me have this day to myself, 
Or maybe I've just been working on having a more positive attitude, and that makes it harder for her to intrude her ass in there. I try to set up a virtuous circle where I feel more centered, which means I don't see the ghost, and that in turn helps me be even more centered. It could work, right? I ought to recognize how cool this is, I tell Raj. All of this. Getting to be true to yourself and make your own family and throw the stupid rules out the window. I don't want to wait until I'm my mom's age before I let myself open up my heart. Raj squeezes my thumb like he gets it, and he feels that way too. And this feels like the start of a whole conversation that we'll have to have later. But then the ceremony starts, and everyone is whooping with joy, and the officiant, who has a U-shaped beard and no mustache or hair, pronounces my mom and Cassie, wife and wife. My mother looks like a whole other person, unrecognizable even from the butch dyke I had just started to get used to. She's wearing makeup and a puffy white dress with a black bow on the front that looks like a bow tie. My mom holds Cassie with all her considerable arm strength, and then she beckons me to get in there. My mother poses, sandwiched between two women in their mid-twenties, and my mom looks more alive than I can remember. She whispers in my ear that I'm beautiful, and she's so proud of me, which feels like something I ought to be telling her instead. The Veterans Hall is a celebration of walnut, from the recessed box pattern on the ceiling to the long, tall panels on the walls. Even the plaque about those who gave their lives appears to be walnut. I concentrate on dodging the bouquet, but then Raj catches it. He giggles and we make out right in front of everyone. More cheers. I spot my ghost at last. But she's just another face in the crowd, over by the hors d'oeuvres table. The bouquet has one dead bud in it. In among the posies, morning glories, pink roses, and the obligatory baby's breath, there's this little gnarled fist, clutched around a gray mouth that never opened. Blighted. The inward-facing petals look like an overcooked crepe. I stare into its dark heart. And then Raj is talking in my ear about taking a trip, just the two of us, to Big Sur, California, where every five yards there's a rock that Henry Miller had kinky sex on top of. Yeah, I say. Let's be Henry Miller sex tourists. We laugh and kiss, and all the young lesbians are cheering my mom, who they all love like a den mother. I'm dancing with Raj to the Zydeco band. He's busting out these ridiculous knee-bending moves, and he eggs me on to dance as funny as him. I dance even worse, all neck and ankles. People are cheering. A young genderqueer person shoots me a thumbs up, and my mom waves from the cake stand. Cassie has her arm around my mom's waist, and the love is radiating outward from them, suffusing the entire room. I feel warm, and exhausted, and inexhaustible. And then my ghost is right there, dancing right next to us. She doesn't dance exactly, more like sway, so her bony wrists wave back and forth. She smiles at Raj in a nostalgic way. These good times were good, her smile says, and then, well... 
You know, we all died. I stop dancing, and Raj is so startled he nearly elbows me in the face. I can't even remember why I was happy a moment ago, and I can't imagine why I would ever feel happy again. The ghost is so close, I can see the pearly embroidery on her white dress. Someone comes with a tray of champagne glasses, and Raj and I take them because there's going to be a big toast or something. My ghost has a flute of champagne in her hand, too, and she's actually crying. Her ghost tears land on her cheeks like the dew that catches the last of the moonlight. She's just watching my mother and Cassie, and I have this moment of, How dare you? That is not her mother. It's mine, and this is my life, and I want it back. I want to care about things without my ghost always throwing shade. My too tight scalloped blue dress constricts my breathing. I glare at my ghost, but she's staring at my mother. So maybe it's time I took something of hers. I reach out and seize the glass of champagne from her loose fingers. It's made of some kind of ghost material, ecto whatever, but the stem is solid in my hand. I raise it to my face and toss it back. It tastes like bitterness, I guess. It tastes a bit like pukey backwash, stomach acid, but also a little like cold duck, that weird sparkling wine the grocery store used to sell for $2 a bottle. It has an aftertaste of fermented dirt, bubbly regret. Before I even swallow, it hits me. Way past drunkenness. Something like a head rush mixed with hypoglycemia and extreme sleep deprivation. Everything looks as though I'm seeing it from a great vast distance, through a pinhole, and maybe that's what ghost vision looks like. The ghost glass is plucked from my hand before I can let it fall on the floor. I can just barely see my ghost looking around in a mad panic, like the worst possible thing has just happened. Raj rushes over to me as I sway, crash to the walnut floor. I feel like I'm having an an-your-mother-fucking-ism. I feel my legs twitching, my hands flailing. Raj is holding my head in a hand, and his fingertips are so gentle, and my head, at least as supported, is overloaded with ghost juice is supported. My ghost vanishes like she can't afford to get caught here with me. The music stops, to be replaced by the crowd freaking out. I'm drunk in a way I've never known was even possible. As I finally zero out, I can feel the cold invade my veins, my bones, my lungs. Petrified, and then dead to the world. 7. Drunk A ghost wedding is a funeral, only with dancing and a cake instead of a casket. What do you give the newlyweds at a ghost wedding? Bone china. Ghost vows are much the same as the regular kind, except you vow to stay together for as long as death holds you. I can still just barely glimpse the wedding party of the living. Raj and my mother and Cassie, all freaking. 
but now I'm among the dead wedding guest. These people are skeletons, except as I move around them, their translucent skin comes into focus, and they have faces made of gray mist. The whole dead wedding party is swaying and passing around plates of wormy, moldy cake, clinking glasses like the one I chugged from. What do you write on the rear bumper of the honeymoon car at a ghost wedding? Just buried. The band is still playing Zydeco, but the beats keep slowing down and speeding up, and the accordion wheezes with rheumatism. There is a buffet full of eyeballs and tongues, still looking around and trying to talk inside their metal trays over cold candles. What kind of wedding crashers go to a ghost wedding? Dig up, artist. I keep laughing, only I am not per se breathing, and every he is slowed way down to the slowest pace of the Zydeco drummer, and I spin my whole body to keep pace with the spinning of the room. Happen if I spin fast enough, the room will stand still. I want to vomit, but cannot. The ghosts at the guest wedding, I mean, the guests at the ghost wedding, are random dead people plus some that I knew when they lived, like my mom's parents and even my great-grandma Julia and my great-aunt Danielle, and that chain-smoking, piano-playing raconteur my parents used to have over when I was little, whose name was Ed, or Fred. They see me looking at them and raise their glasses to me, and I salute back. What do you call the congregation at a ghost wedding? Deadly beloved. I spun halfway across the room from where I drank the champagne. I look back at the spot where I collapsed, and I'm still there, on the ground. Except, it's not me. It's my ghost. She has shorter hair and an older face, and she's wearing a white dress instead of a blue dress. My ghost is talking to Raj, and he can actually hear her, and whatever she is saying, he is nodding very seriously. I can't hear what she's telling him, and I can only see it through the end of a long, hazy reverse telescope. Drunk Tunnel Vision I want to get closer to them, but no matter how I stumble and twist my angle and sweep my arms for balance, I can't get going in the right direction. As my ghost talks to Raj, he nods and nods and, oh shit, now he's crying and still nodding, and I have never yet made him cry in all the months we have dated. He's never given me the look he's giving my ghost. What the fuck is she telling him? Now at last I vomit, but it comes out from my eyes instead of my mouth. The ghosts around me are all gossiping too loud for me to hear a damn thing. Raj's glasses, dark frames, big brown eyes, which, serious Raj looks like a totally different person, older and more physically present. I try to get Raj's attention by shouting and flailing, but he's only looking at ghost me. The gossiping of the ghosts around me gets louder and more shrill, and it's all, Look at her in her shiny dress, and her pristine flesh, and her red lips. She thinks she's all that, just because she's alive. 
Look at that blue-haired man over there. He probably thinks he's invented breathing. The ghosts are getting louder and crankier, and I see them more clearly, while Raj and my mother and Cassie are like chalk outlines. Zydegoban salutes me and starts a dirge, and I'm so blitzed that walking is dancing is flailing. I gotta sober up right now, or I am lost in the land of the dead forever. And maybe my ghost takes my place. The doorway to the veteran's hall is open, and the caterers are coming in through a ribbon of darkness, bearing weird canapes made of pure decay and fake crab, plus oblivion in a blanket. They keep shoving the trays in my face and trying to make me take a bite, as the ghosts grow more and more vivid and everything else fades. The ghosts urge me, take one, try it. Don't be ungrateful. Don't you know what this wedding cost? You think you're too good to eat with us. I look over at Raj, still talking to my ghost, and I feel a pure, sour anger. Why can't he tell that's not me? This proves he never really cared, and I'm so pissed that I almost want to open my mouth and let the other ghost push pieces of the dead wedding feast into my throat. Why the fuck not? And then I stop and see Raj again, his face just a wall of tears. Whatever is going on with him and my ghost, from his perspective, he sees that I'm hurting and he is so desperate to make it right. I look at Raj's face and I see love. Like actual, honest to God, walk naked on broken glass love. And my mom is there too, weeping over the ghost and squeezing the ghost's bony hand. And I feel sorry for my ghost. Because she doesn't know how to cope with the two of them caring about her that much. She looks flustered and scared. I see my poor ghost, looking from Raj to my mom and back again, like she's trapped with their love. I barely notice the specters from the ghost wedding now. I'm so fixated on the two of them and my ill-equipped ghost. I am overcome by a mixture of pity and gratitude. Two emotions I did not know could even be mixed up. The feelings are too big to wrap my mind around. The longer I look at the three of them, and I feel like I'm going to fly apart into a million pieces. Soul and mind, intermixing like matter and antimatter. Unthinkable. Terrible. Amazing. And then, I am vomiting ghost champagne from my eyes in huge, salty gouts. I look up. Raj and my mother are looking down at me, and I am laying on the floor. I laugh, but it becomes a cough. Oh, shit, I say. I'm back. I think I ate, drank something that didn't agree. My mom says an ambulance is coming, and I tell her that I'm sorry I jacked up her special day, but I don't think anything could really ruin what she and Cassie have going. Because you guys are awesome, and I'm proud of you, I say. 
My mom cries harder than ever on Cassie's shoulder, and Raj is supporting my head. I tell Raj that I love him, words I have never spoken, and I'm glad he's team me. He says he loves me, but I get the impression he already told my ghost that. I don't see my ghost anywhere. She doesn't show up at the hospital at all, where they find a tiny brain infarct thingy. Nor do I see her hanging around after they finally send my ass home. Raj looks at me funny when I try to ask him what my ghost said to him. Not that I phrase it like that. I just demand to know what I said after I collapsed at the wedding. He's kind of embarrassed, like, maybe it's bad form to remind me of my drunken brain attack rambling. But I beg and conjole and emotionally blackmail, and he finally says, You told me you felt cursed, and that you blamed yourself, and that you were going to keep hating yourself more and more until you died. And then it would be too late to try and make peace with your past, because your past wouldn't let you in. Honestly, it didn't make a lot of sense to me, and the gist of it is that you need to try a different shrink, or maybe no more regression therapy or whatever. But I'm just a lay person, right? I agree that regression therapy sucks, and that Raj is indeed a person that I want to lay. I climb on top of him even though he protests that my head is still like a Fabergé egg. And I grind into him, while telling him that if he's going to be a kept man, he better put out the goods. Dry humping, we are alone together for maybe the first time. I laugh between kisses. Charlie Jane Anders is the author of The City in the Middle of the Night and All the Birds in the Sky, and the co-host of Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction with Annalie Newitz. Follow her on Twitter at Charlie Jane, C-H-A-R-L-I-E-J-A-N-E. Kim Rogers is an EMC actress and entertainment industry executive. She lives with her husband in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and can be heard at the top of every episode of the Kaleidocast. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. A special thank you to Daniel Leno. Thank you for listening to the Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Calliope DeGamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Orking II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our audio was engineered by Kyle Fink and Atticus Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. Special thanks go out to Mike Allen, Zigzag Claiborne, CSE Cooney, Alpha Daily Majors, Wilson Fowley, Tatiana Gomberg, Julia D. Guzman, 
Carlos Hernandez, Gary Benjamin Holt Jr., Adeodat Ilbudo Roberson, Larissa De Lima, Marco Palmieri, and Diana Foe. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or comment on our website at kaleidocast.nyc, which is where you can find links to all our contributors.